So I didn't, um, I don't have a talk prepared tonight, and I thought it might be nice to take some questions and see if there are any answers. Um, so I'd like you all to reflect for a moment or two about what question would be most vital, most interesting to you, most important for you. If you had one question to ask, and really think about it for a moment, and then we'll we'll do some questions and answers, hopefully. You know, sometimes I suggest you might think about what you really want to know or understand, or especially in your own practice, what's the cutting edge, the most vital piece for you, most vital question. In back, somebody had started to raise their hand. No, not. Should have got it while it was up, huh? Okay. Okay, please stand up. Thank you. So, reading about truth, and that they say truth is nothing which is everything. Pardon? And she said that truth is nothing, but it just encompasses uh, everything. So I have a problem hearing that. Right. So, so somebody, who wrote this? Who said this? Adyashanti. says truth is nothing and everything. So um, let's first start and just talk a little bit about... Um, reading anything, whatever it is, Ajashanti, the Buddha, whatever, you know, very important to start to look at your own experience of what anybody is saying. And actually, the Buddha spoke to this many, many times. He said, he said um, think about it, contemplate it, look at it, look, look very carefully in your own experience, and then see what's true for you. So you bring up this question of truth is nothing and it's everything. So what do you understand about the nothing part? So far. If you could stand up and speak loudly, I'll repeat what you say so people can hear it, but... Okay. I, I get that, but at the same time, uh, not 
So who's going to tell you if you understand it right? Okay, good. <laughs> That's good. But it, it, so, um, so it sounds like sounds good to me. Sounds like you're on the right track to me. You're you're first of all looking at the question of what does it mean when somebody says, "Oh, it's nothing. Truth is nothing," or "Reality is empty," or "It's a void," or any of those kind of ideas that sound sometimes sound really good and sometimes don't sound so good. Sometimes they make us nervous when we hear that. Sometimes it sounds like, wow, what is that? So if it's, no, if it's nothing, or if we break the word up and we hear that it's no thing, then it means exactly what it says. Truth is no thing. It's not a thing. It's not something um, reified. It's not concrete. Or we could then look at what, what does it mean, maybe the opposite. If it's not a thing, what is no thing like? Well, no thing means that it's alive, it's fresh, it's, it's uh, here, but it's not here as anything separate or graspable, as you said. Right? So the truth. And now remember, it, very, it can be very helpful if we're speaking from a Buddhist perspective, that one of the ways the Dharma is translated is as the truth. Right? The teaching of the Buddha is considered the teaching of the Dharma, the teaching of the truth. And then what does truth mean? Truth implies or points to the way things are, reality as it is. Not as an idea, not as something fixed, not as something we can actually hold on to or put in our pocket or take away, but as something that's alive, that's here, that's here right now. Can't, can't be separate from what's here right now. But it's not just a concept. And so, truth is nothing and it's everything because what else, what else is here? Every, everything that's here is some level, some display of the truth. Maybe the most surface display of the truth. It may be the deepest understanding of the truth. The, the next question that I think might be important then is how do we practice with an idea like that? The truth is nothing and it's everything. Where do we find our understanding? Because we could talk about it, we can have a lot of ideas about it, and the ideas are good and they can be valuable or skillful or helpful at times. But what is it, if the truth is everything, then where do we find the truth? Yeah, we find it here. So, the, um, Joseph Goldstein's teacher, Munintradri, would often say the whole truth is right here. The whole Dharma is right here. It's not somewhere else. It's not far away. So, how do we find out what that means in actuality, not as an idea? What's the actuality, then, of truth? And this is where meditation, this is where practice becomes extremely valuable. Meditation isn't just a nice thing to do, but meditation will begin to reveal the truth, the truth of the way things are. It's designed 
to show us what the truth is on both the surface level and then as it begins to permeate or penetrate, then it will begin to reveal the depth of reality. Mindfulness itself um, can't remember quite how it's said, but it has the quality or the action or the movement of um, penetrating reality. It's often used, mindfulness is often used now in a very um, conventional way. Like, oh, I forgot to get the cereal at the supermarket. I wasn't being mindful. It's not exactly what mindfulness meant, what the word sati in Pali meant. That's not how the Buddha used it. You know, I forgot to get the, the cereal or something. <laughs> He, he, was, he, he used it to point at a quality and a capacity of mind that could begin to perceive reality beneath the surface of things or could, be, um, could begin to perceive the, um, um, the universal truth to be found within reality itself and that's why the truth is everywhere because we could turn our attention and if we pay attention in a certain way then reality will show itself because reality is not um, although reality comes in a variety of forms like all the different people in this group are a variety of forms ultimately or universally we all express the same truth one truth for example being the truth of impermanence like we look like we're here and we're solid and we're, we're going to be here, right? And we feel like that mostly to ourselves until we start to perceive reality a little more closely. And then we start to see actually we're not exactly the person we were 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 5 months ago, 5 minutes ago that whoever we are is actually alive, fresh, now, here, period. Except there's no period. Because always the now, the freshness, the aliveness, implies an, a, a no-thingness to reality. So to take a, um, a concept like truth is nothing and it's everything is actually a practice is a contemplative practice and then not to even fix our understanding about what that means but to keep living with the the idea with the concept and to contemplate it for for a day or every day for a month or every day for a year and then it will start to reveal itself to us. If we live with that, you could write that, put that on your altar, let that be part of your contemplation. And then to maybe read some texts that point to what that truth is saying. What that, excuse me, what that concept is saying. Maybe one of the beautiful non-dual texts from the Zen tradition uh, the Shin Shin Ming says, you know, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. 
Um, and the no preference means we're open to each moment as it is, and the reality as it is, not overlaying it with our ideas, our beliefs, our thinking, our imagining, our wishing, our wanting, our past, our future ideas, but actually beginning to land in the present moment reality and let reality reveal itself. Re- reality as a, as, a, as a revelation of that the truth is nothing and everything. Okay? How's that for now? Okay. And let's, let's keep looking at it again, you know, three months, six months, nine months. See how your understanding deepens as you begin to see the reality that we are nothing and everything. Because we're the truth, right? The truth is everywhere. Okay. Yeah? I'll, I'll repeat what you say. Okay, wait, let me say what you said so far. Considers yourself a beginner, gets instruction, stay with the body and the breath, and then the instruction is be with whatever comes up as it's happening, and then there's some question about that. So, let's say I have an emotion. Right. And then I start to feel that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because of course, then things there are spots that come up too, and mm-hmm. I can be off on another thing. Right. So I guess I'm having a little trouble with what I did in the meditation, but I just come back mm-hmm. to my breath to my body, and something else would come up, but I wasn't, you know. Mm-hmm. Good. Like yeah, yeah, that's fine. Fine, quite good question. Question is about skillful means in meditative practice. And, and what does it mean that we use the breath as an anchor and then we open to other experiences and how to do that skillfully and when to do that skillfully? That, okay. So, um, in, in the beginning, it's very, very, very helpful to learn how to ground the attention, ground our consciousness, ground our awareness in our body and the body breathing. And this becomes the primary tool initially to learn how to establish mindfulness or to train the mind in a way that generally it's not trained. The mind is trained to be analytic or to be practical or to be logical or to be rational. It's, it's, it's not trained to be mindful. It's a part of our experience. It's something we already do, but we're not aware that we're being mindful. And so here we're being consciously mindful. Like really, to, to know anything, you have to pay attention and be mindful to some extent. To do anything, to function in any way. But here we're going to take a very 
uh, or a somewhat neutral object like the body of, or the breath, which is even more neutral, and say, we're going to pay attention to that. And we're not going to pay attention to it from a distance, but we want to pay attention to it by experiencing it directly and knowing it through the contact of the sensations of the body and the breathing. And this is, and this, um, this way of organizing our attention will develop the muscle of both concentration and mindfulness. And we want to develop that muscle. So this is like going to the gym. And you do the same rep over and over again. You develop certain muscle. And, and then as we develop that muscle, we also want to, we don't just want to use the muscles we develop for pushing weights up and down. We want to use it if we need to lift up something. We use our muscles, right? Um, so then we want to take the muscle we're developing or the capacity to be mindful and start to apply it to other areas of our experience such as emotions or moods or other sensations in the body or the process of thinking. And I, you notice I very specifically say the process of thinking because we want to learn how to pay attention to thought without being um, mesmerized by the content of the thought, without being enthralled by the narrative that is going on, but actually to begin to see thought for what it is, which is simply thought, <laughs> which is much easier said than done, because we're quite identified with the content of our thinking, meaning we tend to believe it. And, you know, it's okay to believe some of your thoughts. I would recommend about 10%. (laughs) The rest, I just don't know. I can't say. I know personally, I tend to believe about 10% of my thoughts. The rest are just... Let me frame it this way. In Buddhism and, and in the East, often they talk about their six sense doors. Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching smelling, and thinking. If you have an eye, it sees. If you have a nose, it smells. If you have a tongue, it tastes. If you have a mind, it thinks. That's what minds do. It's not good or bad or right or wrong. What's helpful is to learn how to train the mind. And it's good to learn how to train it logically, rationally, analytically, and mindfully. And so in training it to be mindful, then we see we can turn our attention first with the breath by building our power, capacity to be mindful with the breath and the body. And then when there's a strong emotion, now we can bring the same attention to that strong emotion. Sadness, grief, fear, anger, whatever it might be. And, that's, and that has its own nuance to it. Just like when we pay attention to the breath, we want to we feel the sensations. We want to taste it. We want to feel the beginning of the in-breath and the middle of the in-breath and the end of the in-breath and then the beginning, middle, and end of the out-breath. And then, um, and then the next in-breath. And then if there's a pause in, the, in between the in-breath and the out-breath, we want to notice that. 
we want to notice every nuance of the breath. So then there's a strong emotion, then we want to notice the totality of that experience, which will include some thought, generally. It, it can happen that we can have feelings without thought, but it's, it's rare. It's much rarer. Much more we have a thought, this happened or that happened, and then a feeling uh, arises quite naturally. And that feeling has both a physical quality to it or physical component to it and a cognitive component to it, the thoughts about it. And then it'll have the emotional um, uh, quality, which is the affect itself, the grief or sadness, anger that go along with, let's say there's anger, maybe there's a lot of heat or energy in the body, and there's a lot of thought about he did or she did, and I'm going to, and they should have, and what an asshole, and et cetera, et cetera. And then there's, then there's the whole feeling of anger is there. And we want to learn, and mindfulness is a training to learn how to sit in the middle of that, be aware of it, not repress it, and not act on it or be caught in it exactly and so and so then the anger will arise and we'll study it and we'll study it not from a distance or not intellectually or not as some thing over there but as the living reality that anger is at times and the skillfulness of this of learning how to sit in the fire of our emotions is then we don't have to be in the thrall of them. We don't have to be bound by them. And we can both appreciate the emotion for what it is, that it's maybe responding to something quite real that happened, but we can also appreciate that it might not be the depth of our response. It might be the surface truth of our response. And then as we sit with it, maybe it'll reveal more of itself. As long as we're not trying to get rid of it, as long as we're not trying to deny it, as long as we're not trying to um, create some identity um, with it also. And in the same way, we want to be mindful of the process of thought. Because anybody notice any thoughts during the meditation? Okay, a few people, right? One of the great uh, liberating moments in mindfulness is the first moment when you realize, oh, these are just thoughts. And you can be mindful of the process of thinking. That these thoughts are arising and you can, and this is where it's very helpful to use the naming or noting um, technique, which I, I don't mention it here because of brevity, but we'll talk about it more in depth in the beginning class for example, where you can actually use thought as a skillful means. So I might be sitting here and there's a lot of um, thinking about what I'm going to do tomorrow and then the next day and the next day and the next day and I'm going to do this and I've got to do that and I've got to send an email. And then I realize, oh, this is, pl I'm thinking, 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 <laughs> planning, planning. And then the thoughts generally do one of a few things. They will continue and get bigger, more thoughts, pla more planning, more planning, <laughs> oh, really creative now, or they'll start to lessen and you can know, oh, lessening, less thoughts, less thoughts, or sometimes they'll actually stop or they'll poof, 
when you're mindful of thought. They'll just go puff when you start to be mindful of them. And then it's like, and then there's a moment when there's actually no thought. It actually takes a while to, to recognize that at first because we're not used to recognizing. We're much more used to recognizing our thinking than our non-thinking. And, and the, the metaphor I like to use around this, it's just like now. What are you most aware of in your sight right now? Anybody? Yeah, me. But look at how much more uh, space there is between us. We're not usually aware of the space. Be starting to be aware of those moments in between a thought or when thoughts puff, when it happens, because it's a little more distinct when we're really mindful and that happens, it's like, oh, the thought just goes and then there's And then we think, oh, that's so cool. Of course, that's another thought right at that moment. <laughs> but we can start to notice that. And we can start to be mindful. And you said at some point in your question, you said, well, why are we doing this? That's a really good question. <laughs> and that's a really good question because there's many, many different answers. Almost as many people in the room, you know, people have different motivations of why they come to practice. So let me ask you, why are you doing this? What do you want? And, and this is okay to want. Here, don't, don't have any Buddhist idea you shouldn't want. <laughs> what do you want? Right. Okay, so you want to be less less controlled, overwhelmed by emotion. Mm-hmm. That's a really valid place to begin. To begin to see that maybe it's possible, not only that we don't have to be controlled by our emotions, but that our human life is not a mistake. That our human heart and our emotions is not a mistake. That there's nothing inherently wrong with our emotions. We may not have had the training to be, as they say these days, intelligent with our emotions. You know the book Emotional Intelligence? Right, so um, Danny Goleman, Daniel Goleman. So Daniel Goleman was a long, long time Vipassana practitioner. And really the basis of his book is Vipassana meditation, that there is a way to start to relate to our, our heart, our emotions. That's saying that that's not, they're not actually a problem. The problem may be we've never learned how to relate to them. We've never, le- we've never found our ground in relation to our emotions. And so then there's a way that we get overwhelmed by emotions or we're carried away by emotion. And we don't actually think we can stay present, have the emotion, let the emotion be very as big as it needs to be, and then see what our choices are, given the information that the emotion presents to us. Because sometimes it's really accurate, it's really appropriate. A certain kind of anger will bring a clarity that says we need to act here and say no. Doesn't mean we have to shoot somebody. 
because it's a big emotion and we feel angry. But maybe we need to say no. And that no is very firm and very clear. Or maybe there's grief. And maybe the grief is appropriate. Maybe if somebody dies and we grieve, maybe that's not... And people say, oh, you know, they died a month ago. Why are you still grieving? Well, maybe the grief is what true and appropriate. Maybe, as one of my teachers once said, this is a world of loss. Grief is an appropriate response to loss. Here comes the real teaching, right? It's funny, I had this poem. I almost, I thought I was thinking of something else just for a minute or two while I was sitting. And, um, (laughs) and, uh, And I was thinking of this Ryokan poem. I don't quite have it, but he says, uh, um, the rain is gone and the clouds have drifted away. Um, You know, and the sky is clear. And he says, if your heart is pure, all things in your world will be pure. Let go of this. Let go of yourself. Let go of the world. And then the sun and the moon will naturally lead you on the way. The way being the Dharma, the way of the truth. You know, we can just sit and listen to the rain for the rest of the time. And it's one of the reasons why we love nature. Is because it is the Dharma, it is the truth. And it brings us into the present, like the rain comes, or lightning comes, or a rainbow comes, and we're right there. And we think what we love is the rainbow or the lightning, but it's our presence, it's our mindfulness, it's our wakefulness at that moment. I would, I would venture to, or I would propose to you that that's part of what we love is actually our state of consciousness at that moment. So... Let's see, where were we? Grief, emotions. Yeah, so, so yes, I, my wish for you is that you find your ground, you find the capacity to be mindful of emotion and then see what's next. Okay, okay, thank you. Let's see. Yeah. Pardon? Yeah, Buddhist belief that there is no soul. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kind of. So the question is about the Buddhist belief that there's no soul. Um, and what does that mean in terms of that there's past lives, etc., etc.? I think the best way to think about this is that the, the, uh, in Buddhism, they don't think of a soul in the way we think of a soul in the Christian, Judeo-Christian traditions. And so if we can let go of that idea, then we can have some understanding of, of what they might be pointed at with the idea of rebirth. 
So it's not a soul. There's not a soul. There's not a thing exactly that gets reborn. This is where the no-thingness comes in helpful. Because we tend to think of a soul as something permanent and me and that's how who I am and I'm always going to be that. And that's that, that doesn't work in terms of rebirth. But what we could think about is there are certain energies, qualities that may not die when the body dies. And so in Buddhism, and this is specifically in Tibetan Buddhism, they'll talk about the mind stream that continues. But it doesn't continue as a thing. It's more like, it's more like a, a river. You know how a river changes from one place to another, but it continues? It's not the same thing. It's not the same river here and here exactly, but the river continues. It's more that kind, that there's something. And it really probably, for us as Westerners, it might, it might line up easiest or best in terms of the scientific understanding that energy never dies, right? That you can't kill, it just changes form. And so I think it's it helpful more to think in those terms. Now, I, I can't speak to this totally, but if you really look at how um, Socrates used the word soul, that might be more, more applicable, but not in the way we use it in a, in a religion, Western religious understanding. Because Socrates used it more in the term of consciousness. A little, little, bit, little bit like that. And then notice what's important for you about that. You know, how does that, what does that do if you can see it in terms of mind stream or if you can see it in terms of, of that energy keeps transforming, then what impact does it have on your practice? Because that's always the, the important piece on any of these questions is then what does it do? For some people it relaxes them and then they can, they feel a little more trusting and then they can go deeper in the practice. For some people maybe it doesn't work and then maybe they find it's not the right practice for them. And that's a good thing to know if that's the truth because there are a lot of good practices. I'm going to go for people who haven't spoken much in this group tonight. Well, well, whose book? Karen Armstrong. Yeah. That he um, that he left his wife and child uh, might be mm-hmm. very very young. Yeah. And um, and that strikes me as being a very uh, kind of weak thing to do. I mean, frustrating and difficult, but also uh-huh. weak. And, uh-huh. and that and it sort of makes me suspect so, so that anything that someone. So well, well, slow down. It's very good to notice judgments, views, and opinions early on in your practice. Okay, and it's fine to have them. It doesn't mean I'm not saying get rid of them, but you also want to a little bit hold them lightly. Okay, go ahead. So he's weak. Got it.
for, and, and I think it's, it's mm-hmm. very easy mm-hmm. this is completely different from the idea of these practices, which I'm very curious about, and very interested in, mm-hmm. and want to pursue. But I think it's very easy to just say, like, sort of, where is this, this thing that says, hey, you know, no attachment, babe? No, no, that's a, that's a really important point you're making, really good point. So let's let's. So do we care about that? Sure, we should we should we should care about whatever you care about, and then we want to look at it. We want to investigate it. We want to see, okay, what's the truth here? What do we understand? And again, remember, you're looking at it through a certain lens. Definitely, uh, you know, post deconstructionist, slightly feminist lens, okay? And it's a good lens. It's really a contemporary lens that we use. Like, oh, it's not so good to leave your wife and young child, right? And just think that you don't have any responsibility. Um, But let's go back to your first thing. Was What what do we think of the Buddha? What if we think archetypally? Right? Let's just hold for a second. Let's, Let's not even think of him as a real person for a moment. Let's just think mythologically. Because this is one of the great human stories and promises that's been given to us from the heritage of human beings, right? Just as Jesus is one of the great stories and, and heritages that we've been given. Um, and, you know, and each religious tradition has its story and heritage. And this one is alive here right now. We're sitting here because of this story that the Buddha left his wife and child um, because he was so compelled to seek awakening. I don't think, if we look at the story, if we look at the myth, there's nothing in the myth like, oh, he didn't like his wife and child, or he you know, felt like he just wanted to go play around, he wanted to be single. It wasn't like that. It was, it was, there was something else driving him. So we want to look at it in an archetypal perspective. And we can ask the same question, what's driving us? You know, what drives us to come here? You know, on one hand, it may be we want to feel a little better or, or, or not be so in the thrall of our emotions, or maybe we want to feel more whole, or maybe we want to feel and understand what it means, what the truth is, or freedom is, or liberation is, or enlightenment is. That there's certain somethings driving all of us. And maybe we could say on a mythological or an archetypal level we, or an existential level, we're all driven by some kind of existential dissatisfaction. That there's some reason, some level of dissatisfaction that brings all of us here. And the Buddha exemplifies that because he had everything for someone of his time, you know, in, in stereotypically, right? He was a prince, he had a kingdom, he had a wife, he had a beautiful child, but he wasn't happy. And he and the existential dissatisfaction was strong enough, so he left everything. And mythologically, that's a very strong statement. It means, on a certain level, mythologically, we have to let go of everything doesn't necessarily mean actuality. This is where people sometimes get confused with myth and reality. They think, oh, the myth means that I have to do it exactly as the Buddha did. 
like, oh, I have to leave my responsibilities. That's not the case. Well, what, what's being suggested here, at least to my mind, archetypically, is that we have to be willing to let go of everything, to find what we seek, whatever that is, freedom, wholeness, healing, liberation, enlightenment. So that's a little bit how I think about it uh, um, mythically. And there's also some other pieces that are important to, to know, which is that later his son and his wife join the Sangha. Right after he's enlightened, so he doesn't. It's not the end of his relationship with them, but he but he ends up and he has to. He doesn't actually apologize to his wife, but she puts him through some changes. Actually, There's, and it's really true. It's very interesting. It's one of the few times. It's like people come to the Buddha. He's got to go to her, and he goes to the palace, and then she joins the sangha. And the, and the son joins the sangha also, um, and and what I find interesting there in the in the mythology of it is that he ends up in in a different relationship with her, but also a very intimate relationship because in some ways uh, it's one of the most intimate relationships, true sangha, because you're not bound by. You're bound by a love that's deeper than loving a person. I don't know if I can say much more about it. There's something you share, but it's not about, oh, I need to have this person. And, but there's a, a bind, a bound, a connectedness there, and a love uh, of reality, of the Dharma. You're, you're bound by that love of the Dharma. And there's also these, you know, his son also joins the Sangha. And it's very interesting. There are three very specific teachings uh, to his son at different ages when he's in the Sangha. And they're very interesting te- teachings. One, the first one's about um, morality, ethics, uh, how to live in the world. The second is about uh, skillful means in terms of the meditation practice, and the third is about wisdom, and which is also just our typically how as we grow up, first we want we want to live a life that is in some sense in harmony, and then part of our development after we become human beings, meaning we live know how to live with other human beings, part of our development is to develop our capacity to be present and mindful and deepen that so we can begin to perceive reality. That, that's considered part of human development. And then the wisdom is the maturity of human development. So one way you might think about it is typically a little more. The other way, and many people do, they think about it, oh, he really did this. There was really a person named Buddha or Gautama Siddhartha who left his wife and child and, and then became the Buddha. And people think about it different ways. One way is that he sacrificed his family life for the sake of something greater. And people do this in the world over and over again, actually, whether we, we could just think about Martin Luther King or many people who've been 
killed or lost their lives in the service of something greater. They also left their families in that way, or their families were secondary to a greater ideal, a greater belief, a greater love. And to just consider it in that light, if you want to think of him as a real person. So does that give you some different perspectives to play with? And then, whatever you, wherever you come to with that, notice what happens as you practice and forget about all that. Okay. Yeah, I, I just want to see who else. Okay. I'm just a little bit fishing for people who haven't talked, even if you've been here a long time and haven't talked. Okay, there we go. Planning. Mm-hmm. Pardon? Sure. And let me ask you a question or two. How long have you been practicing? Many years. Have you done retreat practice, long retreat practice? Seven days. Seven days. Okay, good. Okay, so planning. Um, I think you know the basic what to do, right? Planning, planning, planning. Pay attention to your body when you're planning. Really see what's happening in your body. And it might be very subtle, but notice what's happening. Also, you, you might start to notice that you, you may be taking a lot of pleasure in the planning. And so you want to notice what's called the Vedana of the experience. Vedana means, uh, literally is described as the feeling or feeling tone of any experience. And any experience will have one of three Vedanas or three feeling tone. It'll be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And, and, and you can start to actually be mindful of that Vedana because the Vedana has a big impact on us. If something's pleasant, we tend to want to hold on to it. If it's unpleasant, we tend to want to push it away. If it's neutral, we actually um, um, won't pay so much attention to it. We'll, we'll actually lose a little bit of attentiveness. And often with planning, there can be a lot of pleasure. Oh, I'm going to do this. I'm Hawaii. And I think I'll go to Kauai this time. And I'll go to that side of the island where there's nobody else and the beaches are just really pristine and, oh, and I love how the sun sets on the ocean there and I wonder what kind of car I should rent while I'm there. Let me just think about it. Oh, I think I'll get an SUV. Nobody knows me on Hawaii. I could, I could get one of those You know, you could, right? It can be very enjoyable, the planning. So, so, um, so what, what you, one of the things that will happen that thoughts will continue if we don't pay attention to their totality. It's a very, even thought is a total experience. So part of that totality is the Vedna, is the pleasantness or unpleasantness, but then also the body. What's happening in your body as you're planning? 
Now, one of the things that might surprise you or you might discover is you might find a certain level of tension in the body when you're planning. And then you can start to be mindful of that. And you can drop out of the planning and into the felt sense of the tension. And you may even notice, and this is just, um, you know, this is not always true, but can often be true, is there's a little anxiety that the planning uh, um, kind of ameliorates or, or covers. And so if you can actually start to become with, uh, aware of the body and the anxiety that might be there, then you're getting to a more fundamental level of experience and the planning becomes less compelling. And the anxiety, not, now you have something really rich to practice with. And anxiety is a really good thing to learn how to sit with because it's, it's normal for you, for any animal to have anxiety, including human animals. And when we can start to find our ground, even in being anxious, when we cannot be in the thrall of the anxiety, an interesting level of freedom starts to show itself. Okay? Yeah. Maybe one more. Just looking for people who haven't spoken. Fishing. There we go. Pardon? Like planning has to be sort of important on some level. Uh-huh. Sort of go back and forth from like obsessive planning and then just like what's the point kind of, you know? Right. So and I feel like either one of those places is not a good place to be. So how do I sort of find the middle? So a few things here. Planning is absolutely important for us, right? It's not important that we plan while we're meditating, though. <laughs> it's, in, it's important to plan, like, okay, today. You know, maybe first thing, some a lot of people when they wake up, they kind of plan their day. Okay, what am I going to do today? Okay, I'm going to, I need to get this done. I'm going to sit for 20 minutes, and then I'm going to go to work, and then I'm going to whatever it is, plan your day. Yeah, planning stuff for the future. You sit down. Okay, I'm going to plan next year. I want to go to graduate school, or you know, or I want to put a band together, and I'm going to get this kind of, you know, I'm going to plan. But when you're meditating, you don't have to be doing that. You can plan, but when you plan, when you're planning, just plan. And and one one of the practices you can do while you're planning, and this is is ground yourself in the present moment. You're still in the present, even though you're planning. You may be thinking about what's needed even five years from now. But feel your body while you're planning. Stay in contact. Feel your hands touching, like even now, as you're feeling your hands touching. Let that begin to ground you even as you're thinking. And it begins to ground the thinking in the present moment. The thinking is always happening in the present moment, even if you're thinking about what's going to happen 20,000 years from now. That's happening right now. And the more we get grounded in the present moment, it can actually help clarify our thinking. It can help our thinking, um, it can help bring the um, 
um, qualities that we want to bring to our thinking, which is clarity, intelligence, creativity, imagination, um, um, a sense of objectivity also, all part of using our thought wisely. So, planning is fine. Don't plan when you're meditating. If you do plan when you're meditating, don't judge it. It's not a bad thing. Be mindful of it. This, is, this, this shift may be the most important information I could give you about meditation. Don't judge anything that happens. Be mindful of it. So the shift is from, uh, um, uh, you know, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Right? Planning's going to happen when you meditate. Don't judge it. Don't condemn yourself. Because then you cut off the meditation. Be mindful of the planning. And of course, now this is where it gets bigger. If you notice you're judging, don't judge that. Be mindful of judging. Everything's included in mindfulness. Even judging, it happens. We don't have to judge ourselves for the judging. Does that answer your question a bit? Okay, and if you notice there's like obsessive, compulsive planning, start to pay attention. What's happening in your body? What's happening in present time that you don't want to experience? Because if there's, if there's an obsessive planning, we're trying to get away from something, and we want to see, well, what's the truth? What's, what's the truth of what's here now? Okay. Let's sit for a minute before we end. the merit of our practice here this evening. May we offer it freely to beings in every direction. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering. Suffering of war and of division fear, racism, hatred. May all beings be free from the suffering of greed, avarice, ignorance, confusion, delusion. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings awaken. May we awaken together. May we realize the truth, nothing and everything. 
the truth of our nature, our Buddha nature, the nature of wisdom and compassion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.